Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Pleasure to have my old friend Peter Bosley, who has just written his book Economic Policy Making in China, 1949 to 2016, the role of economists. And he, you know, you have his bio, but he is really one of the few people who is well prepared to write on these issues. Who has dealt with the Chinese economic leadership for how many years? Thirty. Now it's going on about a quarter of a century. We're only 25, so not so long. But, uh, um, you know, I first met him when he was, uh, what is it, he's called Resident Chief of the World Bank Office in Beijing, so, which was in the, 19, the mid-1990s. Uh, so he had first-hand experience kind of uh, dealing with the, China, with the economic leadership of China as they were kind of turning to the World Bank and others for how they were going to run uh, reform and opening. And, you know, the success, obviously, despite what uh, some people in the United States say, which is based upon what the United States did. No, the success is based upon what the Chinese did. But certainly some foreign advice was useful in, the, in that time. Um, but it's an interesting book. It's certainly in, it's full of footnotes. It's one of the few books I've seen that's more than 50% footnotes. <laughs> so uh, everything is well documented. But it's great to welcome you here. Uh, you'll speak for about how long? Well, how much time do you want to give me? I'll give you two minutes. Questions? <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll give you uh, 20, 25 minutes. Does that work? Okay. And then we'll go to uh, questions from me and, and uh, right. questions from a distinguished audience. So that's okay. We'll and this program, I should say, is being live streamed. So uh, the National Committee has entered the 21st century in, in great style, and we're now live streaming it. One of the reasons we love live streaming it is because we couldn't fit everybody into this room who wanted to come. So it was a great idea. So we got two cameras, and I'm saying this because when you ask a question, it will be for the record. So, uh, Peter, thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you for all your great help to the National Committee over many decades, and uh, thanks for coming up to New York. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm very honored to, uh, to speak for an audience here for the National Committee of U.S.-China Relations. Those of you who know the history of China's economic development know how important the National Committee has been in helping cement the bilateral relationship and what the consequences, the long-term consequences that have been. So I'm very honored. I know the importance of the committee and what they have done. That led me then to warn you all that my book and my talk here is not really focused on U.S.-China relations, but on a much narrower subject, um, on the question how did the economic policies pursued by Deng Xiaoping and before him by the Mao Zedong crowd. How did they come about? Who were the key people who thought about these F, uh, complicated questions? 
who are the key economists on the Chinese side, and how did they arrive at their conclusions as to what, what should be done. So that was the focus of my, uh, my research. So this is primarily a history book. It's not going to be a bestseller. If you are here to uh, come, come away with some really headline material, forget it, there's no headline material. Um, if anything, my contribution is some, in the nature of some fine-tuning, understanding better what really happened. When I started out, I focused, wanted to focus primarily on the period I knew best, that is the period of economic reforms that started on the Deng Xiaoping since the late 70s. But the more I dug into things that I did not know, the more I realized that it's very hard to understand Deng Xiaoping reform period and the kind of policies they thought they had to pursue unless you understand the problems that they were trying to correct. So that led me to go back to the much earlier years, even before 49. You know, the communists gained control of the Jiangxi Soviet already in 1931. And although nobody today, or very few people today, know the history of that, it's interesting, for me at least, that these early communist rulers, uh, not Mao Zedong was already chairman of the party in 31 in the Jiangxi Soviet, um, that they were very interested in e economic policy questions. They didn't necessarily know what to do, but they knew that inflation was bad. So one of the first things that the communists did in 31 already was to establish a bank in Danxi Soviet that had the authority to issue its own money. First time that Chinese communists began to issue money was in 31. And it was Mao's own brother, uh, I forgot his name, um, Mao Zemin, who was the head of that bank. That bank got money issue rights print money, make coins that circulated in the Jiangxi Soviet and competed with Chiang Kai-shek's money. When the, when the communists were finally forced to leave the Jiangxi Soviet and begin what we now know as the Long March in 34, they were so attached to that bank, they took it all with them on Gulbank. All the ability to print money, to make coins, was taken on Gulbank as part of the Long March. But that, of course, took care of a lot of mules, and the mules were very scarce at that time. So after a few months, they dropped all that stuff. But they resumed these economic policies in, in Jiangxi province, in the, in the northern part of, of Shaanxi province, not long after they had ended the Long March. Another illustration of how keen the communists were to preserve at least financial stability was the creation of the renminbi. This was not done after 49. It was done in 47, 48, December 48, when the communists were in charge of the Dongbei, the northwestern portion of, of, uh, of China. And asked three banks to form a new bank that became the People's Bank of China which subsequently became the central bank, but that started in Xichuan as a regional bank, communist-owned, 
that was in charge of issuing money and make sure that the peasants would not avoid putting their savings in the bank because they knew how important banks were. And one of the things they did, which was all new to me, nobody had ever taught me that, was to invent a, a, an inflation-proof system of deposit accounts. So all these, what these country pumpkins did was very sophisticated economic stuff, in fact, but they may not have realized that. When the Mao Zedong established the PRC in, in, on the 1st of October 49, one of the first things they did was to bring that bank from Dongbei to Beijing and ask them to repeat the same <coughs> trick, namely to substitute, Chaka, to substitute the renminbi for Chiang checks money, which was inflating away all savings very quickly. So the renminbi was, in fact, introduced after 49 China wide and was one of the factors that enabled the communists to fairly quickly deal with the massive inflation problem, which was plaguing the, plaguing the country. And the fact that the communists were so effective in getting inflation under control relatively quickly with that combination of deposit accounts, inflation-proof deposit accounts, and the new currency, and very conservative fiscal attitude. They didn't want to spend more than they took in. So they never borrowed any money. They had no debt. Very conservative fiscal people. But all that succeeded in getting inflation under control very quickly. And that is one of the not discussed factors that gave the communists credibility fairly early on. And that we always think about the political aspects of that transition, the military conquest, but the economic conquest was very important. So I, I went into the history of all of that and discovered all sorts of things. Um, now on the book itself, very briefly, as Steve was saying, what you call footnotes is in fact a, a chronology. That's almost half the book, 40%. Yeah. It may look like a footnote, but it's in fact an, an, an annotated chronology. What actually happened, not to the economy, but the process of economic decision making. And that is the heart of the book in a way. Nobody had ever sort of written up the, to my knowledge at least, the actual sequence of policies and what brought about those policies. What were the key events? Who were the key people who thought through the implications of these, of these policies? And what were the documents on which they were based? Um, one of the most important early documents was a, an essay written by Mao Zedong himself in 1940 called On New Democracy. That was a, a, long, a fairly long essay, but that became the kind of benchmark document for economic policy making in the first few years. And when the People's Republic was established in 49, there was no cabinet, they had no central bank, they had all these chunker check banking institutions. And it's very interesting to me that even though they had no articulated set of economic policies at that time, Mao Zedong asked Chen Yun, his old friend and party, fellow party leader, uh, to take charge of the economy. 
and for almost three years, until late 52, China had only one person who was in charge of the economy. There was no economic cabinet, there were no ministries, and that was Chen Yun. Chen Yun was an incredibly important figure, much more important than I had ever realized. He was also, after Mao Zedong's death in September 1976, the key figure, he was a very senior party member. He is now one of the eight immortals, together with Mao Zedong. Immortals means that these, these cannot be touched. These are very senior party leaders, and Deng Xiaoping was one of them. It was Deng Xiaoping who persuaded Hua Kofang, who was Mao's, Mao's designated successor, to free Deng Xiaoping from the house arrest under which he was at that time. Because Chen Yun knew Deng Xiaoping, knew what a clever fellow he was, and how badly the party needed people like Deng Xiaoping to help design a new program, economic program. Chen Yun himself could have perhaps done it. He had been in charge of the economy in the late 40s, early 50s, and again in the early 60s. But he feel, felt he needed Deng Xiaoping to help him design a, a totally new approach to economic development, which was very different from what Mao Zedong had tried. So Chen Yun was a key figure who helped free Deng Xiaoping from his house arrest. He persuaded Hua Kofang that they had to bring Deng Xiaoping back to the center and restore his old positions. He was deputy chairman of the central committee. He was also deputy prime minister. And he was a very good politician. So once Chen Yun had brought, and Chen Yun and some others had brought Deng Xiaoping back, then the whole process of deciding what to do started. That culminated in the third plenum of December 1978. That was the third plenum of the 11th Party Congress. That was pre preceded by a work conference of the party and educated people. And the closing speech that was made by, for that work conference was made by Deng Xiaoping. That, that closing speech became the agenda for the third plenum, essentially. And what we now regard as the start of the economic reforms, that third plenum, was essentially based on Deng Xiaoping's idea that he presented to the party and managed to persuade his fellow party leaders of, of following. So Deng Xiaoping became then the paramount leader, even though he was not party secretary or so on. Um, that was Hua Kofang, but Deng Xiaoping didn't think much of Hua Kofang. He was a, not a terribly enlightened leader, so he basically wanted to get rid of him, but that, that took a little while. That was accomplished by um, several steps that I won't have the time to go into. So most of the book is an attempt to actually write down what actually happened in terms of economic policies. And because it's a history book, I try to interpret these policies. And I try to indicate what were the key events, what were the key conferences, what were the key documents that were used in these processes. And uh, five of the six chapters that follow the, the chronology 
are basically an elaboration of the chronology. They deal with particular aspects. One of the chapters, which is a bit of an outlier, deals with how China actually entered the World Bank and the IMF, which was one of the first things they did, Deng Xiaoping did, after the normalization of US-China diplomatic relations on the 1st of January, 1979. Deng Xiaoping and his fellow leaders at the, by that time had been persuaded by Gu Mu, which was one of the deputy presidents at that, deputy prime ministers at that time, that they were doing themselves a disservice by blocking all borrowing from Western countries. They couldn't even think of borrowing from the World Bank. They weren't members in the first place, but even if they had been members, they couldn't borrow because that was an agency associated with Western economics. And Mao Zedong had a self-imposed restriction on borrowing from the West. The only place they could borrow from was Moscow. So Gumu had been on a very important mission to Western Europe in middle of 78. 40-man mission, part, all party, senior party leaders, to study France, Belgium, some of the Scandinavian countries, and Switzerland, all Western economies. And they were expecting, following Mao's predictions, to, to, to find that all these economies were on the brink of collapse because that was consistent with communist thinking at that time. Capitalism led to collapse of the, of the economy. They were all surprised that these economies were not on the brink of collapse. They were actually doing very well. They were technologically very advanced. It wasn't only the United States, but there were Western European countries that were just as advanced. And they, they had a totally different political systems but they were not eroding the power of labor. They, in fact, cherished labor through collective bargaining provisions and so on. So Kumu, when he came back to Washington, recommended that they should discontinue this ban, self-imposed ban on borrowing from the West, because he had been persuaded that these Western economies, all Western European countries, had something useful that they could learn from. And Deng Xiaoping bought that almost immediately after the normalization of relations with the U.S., which was the big price, of course, that was the single biggest price they were aiming at, he called, he asked his new ambassador in Washington to call the World Bank and the IMF, how do I get back in? Because he saw in the World Bank in particular, more than the IMF, a, a, a potential teacher on how you develop an economy, how you gain access to capital markets, what you have to know about the experience of other countries, member countries. And McNamara was the president of that, of the World Bank at that time. And was very keen to bring China back into the World Bank as a full member. He had only one problem. China was already a member, but the China that was a member was Taiwan, of course, was the Republic of China. The Republic of China had borrowed a lot of money from the World Bank in the 60s and 70s. And McNamara realized that bringing the PRC in would mean kicking Taiwan out or asking Taiwan to leave. There was no, after the Kissinger visit in the middle of 71, no, no other alternative. McNamara foresaw that that eventually was going to happen and set in motion a process that made it possible for Taiwan to leave 
to honor all its debt to the World Bank, never even defaulting on one penny, so that the World Bank could preserve its AAA bond rating, which was a very prized possession, of course, because that enabled the World Bank to borrow at almost the same rate in global capital markets as the US Treasury, which made World Bank money relatively cheap for its member countries. So it was very important for McNamara that he did that. And one of the chapters in this book is devoted to, to this question which nobody today knows anything about, not even in the World Bank, because it's so long ago. How, how did McNamara do all that? I was going to the World Bank archives in Washington, hoping to find all the information on that. World Bank archives on that are still closed. Presumably, I was never given a definitive answer on that, because Beijing doesn't want this whole story to become public. Then I learned by chance that McNamara's number two, Mr. Uh, California lawyer, a certain Mr. Burke Knapp, who had died in 2005, left all his personal files with the Hoover Institution in California. So I approached the Hoover Institution and gained access to all of Burke Knapp files. That's where I found out the story. This is absolutely fascinating. I won't have time to, to share it all in detail with you. Maybe we can go into some aspects during the Q&A if there is time. But I just want to mention that it's an important aspect of the whole China's emergence was gaining membership in the IMF and the World Bank. They were much more interested in the World Bank than in the IMF. They never borrowed money from the World Bank. They borrowed a lot from the World Bank. And the World Bank was perhaps because it was politically unaligned, was not a threat to China. One of the most important sources accessed by Deng Xiaoping, Cao Jiang, and by his successors as uh, for information on what other countries have done, how you deal with abject poverty. One of the reasons why China has been so successful in, in redressing abject poverty was the World Bank, in fact. World Bank was one of the early partners with China in developing a modern infrastructure, the highway system, the electricity system, river transport system, sea transport system, containerization of the ports and the railways so that there was, would be modern export possibilities which were totally non-existing, modern storage for grain. China now has a modern nationwide system for storing and transporting grain, bulk grain. It didn't exist at all. Uh, even when Deng Xiaoping started in the late 70s. All these facilities that we now take for granted were pioneered by the World Bank in initial projects. And when they were successful, China replicated them often nationwide. So the World Bank relationship was very important. And I was privileged in the early and mid-90s to head the World Bank office in Beijing and learned a lot that otherwise I might never have learned. One of the things I learned, and that's an aside, just kick me when I'm going on too long, too long. Is that the World Bank was so trusted by China that they were asked to do all sorts of things that were unrelated to the World Bank project. One of the things I spent a lot of time in, to time on during my first few years was opening up the labor market for professional for, for Chinese staff. When I started my job, all Chinese staff in the office, some 65 people, were assigned to the office by Chinese agencies through the Ministry of Finance. They weren't even our staff. 
we paid the agencies for the miserable salaries that these people got. The Ministry of Finance realized that that couldn't last forever, that these things had to be opened up. So they asked the World Bank by word of mouth, there never was anything written on that, to begin to experiment with a system that was called direct recruitment. The fact that you now have a totally open labor marketing system in China, in Beijing, it was started by the World Bank in Beijing. Shanghai, of course, Shanghai private sector was way ahead of Beijing and had already begun to experiment with these things. But the official communist controlled system was opened up by the World Bank already in the early 90s. So let me say a few things about the book, otherwise I'm going way over my time. Uh, perhaps the most, the best easy way, easy way to explain it is to give you a summary of chapter one. In chapter one I put what surprised me most, what puzzled me most about my findings. Because many of these things were are not public knowledge. Now, so let me run through some of my surprises. I can't go through all of them. The, the, the first surprise was that this famous third plenum of the party, top leadership, central committee, in December of '78 uh, was not the beginning of the liberalization of agriculture or the deep beginning of the end of the big communes. That, that, that was a process which had already been initiated in Anhui and in Sichuan, where Zhao Ziyang was at that time party secretary. And um, that process was going on, but most of the party leaders in December 78 were very uncomfortable with that. The official communique of the third plenum of 78, to my utter surprise when I began to read these things, actually forbade a return to private farming. It took the party two more years to formally acknowledge in a document that farmers had the right to select their own method of production. And that was two years later. The first thing that actually happening, that happened, and that was the beginning of the entire liberalization process, was not in agriculture, was in retail trade. Don't forget that the end of the communist revolution, after that period was over, when the Gang of Four had been arrested with um, permission of the party leader, Vincent, his name, that was the form, that was the end of the cultural revolution. One of the things that began to happen very quickly after that is that a very large number of young people, probably millions, returned to parts of China they wanted to go to, the China cities. China was not heavily urbanized at that time. But there were millions of young people who wanted to go to the cities to make a future for themselves. They had been sent to the countryside as part of the country revolution for punishment or re-education purposes. They had to, the party had to do something with these people. And what I found out is that one of the first things the party agreed to which was really the beginning of the economic liberalization process, was to allow street vending that rapidly, rapidly absorbs a lot of people and certain types of retail trade. Took care of a lot of thousands of people in the cities. So retail trade and street vending, much more than private farming, was the beginning of the economic revolution 
that we are still observing today, although in the last five years we've seen some developments that worry me a little bit. If there's time, we can go about that later. Um, another surprise for me was how, how difficult it was for the party early on in the early 80s after the Deng Xiaoping had died, and uh, Mao Zedong had died, and Deng Xiaoping had set in motion, had persuaded his fellow party leaders to set in motion a process of economic reform. Nobody knew what to do at that time. And one of the most controversial issues was whether it was acceptable in a socialist system to pay incentives to companies or people there was a special name for that, which in English was called paying people according to work. Under a communist party system, you pay people according to needs. So the idea that you would pay people according to what they contributed was a revolutionary idea. And there was huge disagreement within the party, even in the early 80s, whether that was acceptable. Because one thing everybody agreed upon, we don't want to become capitalists. We want to be establish a socialist system with certain capitalist elements in it that will help us to establish a more prosperous socialist system. But everybody agreed that it had to be socialist. And was paying people according to their contribution consistent with the idea of socialism. What I found, there were hundreds of conferences all over China to debate just that issue. And they couldn't reach agreement. The party was internally totally divided on that question. There were about as many people who argued you could not do it as uh, people who were arguing you could do it. It was finally Deng Xiaoping who took the lead in this issue, who authorized an editorial or a long article in the People's Daily, which was the party's newspaper already there, the Renmin Rebao, that Paying people according to their contribution was consistent with socialism. It was a personal decision made by Deng Xiaoping. Once that article had been published in the, in the party's newspaper, it became dogma. It became acceptable to pay pre, uh, bonuses to party leaders, to, sort of, to uh, managers of successful state-owned companies, and to pay bonuses to workers who did more than the average. That also led that principle to the all sorts of market-oriented principles that followed. The whole idea that enterprises should be able to compete and retain part of their profits grew out of that concept. It was a total, not, not many people in the West knew where they came from, but this was a breakthrough of monumental proportion, paying bonuses, paying people according to their contribution to the output. You may want to jump to the present, because if we stay back in the 70s and early 80s, I we're not going to get to the, yeah, that's right, you'll never make it. So we probably, we talked about some of your concerns going, you know, that exist today. I think in the podcast before this, we talked about, I think one question would be, you know, you, you talked about a third plenum. I often talk about the third plenum of the 18th Party Congress. Um, I discussed that, but and you discussed your concerns about the direction of China's economy today. Yeah. Talk about how the third plenum.
fits into your kind of the third plenum of the 18th part of Congress fits into your concerns about uh, China's economy going forward. Okay, let me let me do that. But before I answer your question, allow me to exp uh, explain the reasons for my concern. When the current party secretary was elected to lead the party in the, in the fall of 2012, he allowed the issue of a paper that subsequently became known as document number nine. A draft of doc document number nine was leaked to a paper, a Chinese language paper here in New York. I have the name of the magazine, Minjing or something. Document number nine uh, argued that it would be a great mistake for China to go in the direction of a uh, universal value system, human rights system, that it would be a great mistake to go to a constitutional democracy system, that it would be a great mistake to go to a separation, formal separation of powers within the executive branch of the government. And people here were horrified by that leak in that authoritative New York Chinese language paper. So we were very delighted to see the decision made by the 13th plenum, the, the, the third plenum of the 18th Party Congress, which followed that by less than six months, which was in the fall of 2013. The third plenum was a very good document. It, it gave us the, those of us who had become very concerned by the, the leaked draft of document number nine, which was apparently never finalized because nobody knows what happened to it. Um, the third plenum, which is, a, you know, once every five years the party holds a big congress and then it has every year a plenum. That's a plenum of the interim committee the central committee of the party. And typically the third plenum is devoted to economic matters. The third plenum in November of 2013 made a decision that gave the China watching community outside China great sense of relief because it recommitted the country to the pattern of economic reforms that had been set in motion in the late 70s by Deng Xiaoping. But there was a snag in that third plan. There were two critical decisions that the Central Committee made that seemed to contradict each other. One decision was that the market should be, should be recognized as the decisive factor in the allocation of resources. And when we read that, we thought, ah, that's, that we, we recognize that. That's, that's a step in the right direction. But then in the next paragraph, that same decision says that the Communist Party should retain a leading role in the Chinese economy. And Western minds don't see the consistency between those two objectives. We see them as conflicted. So we were wondering what would happen in the case of a conflict between those two objectives. Which, which objective would prevail? The party centrality or the market centrality? And what now I'm answering your question, why many people, including myself, became a little concerned or very concerned about what's going on in China today 
is that the second principle, namely the party centrality, seems to be the real key objective of the current top leadership, not the market centrality. And that is, has been pursued in, over the first five years of the current administration, led by Mr. Xi Jinping, who is also president of the Republic, of course, even though he didn't become president until March 2013. Um, For example, how does that play out? Give us some examples of where you find that well, what the we, party what I is look not allowing market forces. What I look, look at as an economist is the allocation of credit in the economy. I look at the financial statistics a lot. And what you find in the last five years is that the proportion of bank loans that has gone to state-owned enterprises, which had gone down in the preceding 20 years, has gone up again, way up again. Not only that, but also uh, state-owned enterprises have been given a, a much more prominent role in the economy, have been given, once again, privileged access to state bank loans, markets, and seem to be protected by the party in all sorts of ways that we don't necessarily know about, because the system is not very transparent. So what we are seeing is an economic system which has, seems to have gone back on the earlier reforms towards dominance of state enterprises. Private enterprise is still very important in China, and the number of new private enterprises registering every, every day in China is very high, by far the highest in the world, much higher than in the United States. But what we have seen is a resumption of tendencies to favor state enterprises in all sorts of ways that are not necessarily very transparent. But that worries me a lot on the economic side. On the political side, I think there are also reasons to be concerned because the current leadership has amassed a lot of power, decision-making power in its own hands, centralization of decision-making power, the erosion of central committee and Politburo powers, in favor of the centralization of powers in the hands of the party secretary. That's on the political side, what seems to be happening, what is happening, and what worries a lot of people because it contradicts what was going on in the earlier decades, reforms. So how does that, how does the, uh, this spill over into the US-China relationship? Well, um, it is one thing I wish would be for the leaders in this country, including the president, but also the key people around him dealing with China, is that they know the history better. One contribution I hope to make by, by this book is to develop interest more in the history. One of your, as National Committee's main objectives, is to promote improved understa mutual understanding between the two countries. And one, one element of understanding is understanding and knowing history, which is what I've tried to do in this book. I think where things went off the rail is that um, the, the, the degree of comfort we had up till this, this current leadership in China moving in the right direction, maybe not at the, at the pace we had wanted to see, but at least in the right direction, um, was, was undermined by the current leadership. 
at least so we see it in the West, and many Chinese see it that way. I was in Beijing only a few weeks ago, and I talked to a lot of the senior, senior people, and I was <coughs> amazed to see that in private conversation, a lot of people express concern about what's going on. Concerned about what aspects? Uh, the political aspects and the economic aspects. Which part of the economic aspects? And, and, and too much effort to promote state enterprises in the economy and to control what is going on in the allocation of resources. Uh, one aspect, resources being the credit allocation. Yeah. One, one aspect of that has caused a lot of controversy and unhappiness in the relations between China and its main trading partners, the EU and the US, is, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, this industrial policy called... 2025. Yeah, China, made in China 2025, yeah. which is an industrial policy aimed at promoting Chinese technology, technologies by Chinese enterprises, not necessarily only state enterprises, but just across the board. That has caused a lot of problems in the relationship. Not because I'm, not because I think we should be opposed to the idea that China has an industrial policy. I accept industrial policy as a normal thing. A, a well-managed developing country should have an industrial policy. But what has gone wrong here is that the, the, the initiators of this policy, which was the Ministry of Technology, incidentally, not Mofcom, as many people say did not anticipate the negative re reception that this policy would have in the world at large. I think the policy is not bad, but it was sold in the wrong way, and they did not anticipate enough the negative spillover effect on international relations. But I'm not opposed to the idea of an industrial policy. We should not forget that the US economy was brought great on the industrial policy. Until the Second World War, the U.S. was, in fact, one of the most protected economies in the world. We tend to forget that. It wasn't, wasn't until after World War II that the U.S. began to lead an open trading system. Before that, forget it. So what China today is doing, being a much poorer country than the U.S. was even then, is not a bad idea per se. I don't want to discourage the Chinese from economic planning or pursuing an industrial policy, articulating it. But in today's world, with globalization having gone as far as it has, you should also think through the international consequences of what you're doing domestically. And I'm afraid that the party leaders who authorized this policy didn't think that through. Isn't China moving towards a consumption-driven growth? Doesn't the data tell you that China is doing exactly what we asked them to do? Absolutely. It, it was already under Hu Jintao that the leadership realized that this pattern of economic development that China was pursuing, based on export growth and infrastructure investment mostly, was not a sustainable pattern in the long run. Already Hu Jintao introduced the convinced the party that they had to move towards a very different system of economic development. I can't remember the name of it. Um, th that was the heart of the tenth five-year plan, which was introduced in 2006. 
but that didn't materialize. They couldn't do what they said they were going to do because the international financial crisis happened in 2008. And as you know, they responded to that with this huge stimulus program, which was largely credit financed. That's the source of many of the problems we have in China today. So during the 10th five-year plan, zero progress on this restructuring of the economic growth model. But when, when the 11th five-year plan came along, which was started in five years later, so that is 2011, was after the crisis, they retained those same objectives, restructuring the economy in the direction of dependence on domestic demand, especially consumer demand. And we then we see the beginning at the 11th five-year plan of great success in restructuring the economy. If you look at China today, the most important driver of economic growth is no longer investment, it's domestic consumption. Domestic consumption as a percentage of GDP is still much lower than in the US, but the US overconsumes. The US consumes more than it produces. That's one of our problems. China is still a net capital exporter, but not so much anymore. The, the notorious current account surplus, which was an aspect that the previous US and foreign governments complained about, which was over 10% of GDP in 2007, which is off the charts. A large economy like China with a current account surplus of 10.7% of GDP. Last year it was 1.3%. And this year we think it may go down to a little over zero. That was going to be my next question, exactly, which was, I was going to say, what my question was going to be, what is the ratio of China's current account surplus to GDP? And you answered that question. And that was the standard that we gave to the that's when correct. it was 10.7, we said, that is exactly what you said. That's off the charge. It's not fair. Now they've dropped down to probably below 1%. Below 1%. And we're saying it's now we're gonna, we've changed the standard to a bilateral trade deficit, which I think serious economists think is ridiculous. So are we being fair? Well, I had hoped to avoid political subject. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking an economic question. This isn't a political question. But the political dimensions of that question are very obvious. I'm, I'm not uh, going to say much on this, but I believe that official US economic policy visa China is extremely bad. Not just a little bit, but as bad as you can think of. The notion that a bilateral trade deficit is a criterion for policy formulation is totally nonsensical. The other main lag of US policy making, economic policy making vis-a-vis China, technology, theft, we could talk about that. That's a different question. But initially, the source of the problems, or perceived problems, was the big, big bilateral deficit which was on commodity trade only $370 billion, $375 billion last year. And if you take into account not only commodity trade, but commodity and services, because the US typically has a large service and services trade, even with China, the, the total commodity and services deficit that the US had in 2017 was lower than the commodity trade deficit by about 40 to 
$45 billion. That's our surplus in commodity trade with China. So I'm, I cannot say many good things about US, current US economic policy vis-a-vis -vis China. I think it, we're totally on the wrong track. I think we've done a lot of damage to the relationship by pursuing these policies. And I'm not even sure that if we were to persuade the White House of the wrong things they're doing, or of the fact that they're doing things in the wrong way, I'm not even sure that they can correct it. Because the limited amount of goodwill that the US enjoyed in China has been evaporated by the trade wars. When I was in Beijing just two, less than two weeks ago, I sensed that uh, even the intellectuals have now come to the conclusion the US is not their friend. They always looked at the US as their friend, ultimately. But I, I sense that the goodwill is gone today. So even if the US changes its mind and put these China policies on a better track, I'm not even sure the Chinese would buy it today. I'm glad you didn't want to have a political answer. <laughs> well, let, me, let me ask one, one last question. Uh, you know a lot of the, 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 the economic policy makers. You, you've spoken with them. Um, you've been in China? In China. Uh, you know, many years. I've spoken here. Uh, they, knowing that, do you think that current economic policy in China is consistent with their views of what economic policy should be? Uh, in answer to your question, I'd like to make a distinction between those Chinese economists who are in charge of the financial sector and those who are doing with the real, dealing with the real economy. I see problems of the real economy in the form of a resumption of importance of the state-owned enterprises. I see much more commitment to liberalization on the financial side. The Chinese, in fact, hardly attracted any attention in this country, but have opened completely foreign investment to the automobile sector and the financial sector. But we, did, we choose not to pay attention to that. That's just a few weeks ago. Then I... Well, they're, 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 it's staged opening. It's, it's not immediate. No, it's not immediate. It's staged. But they're moving the financial sector, which is, of course, hugely important, continuously in the right direction, even today. They have a foreign exchange, an exchange rate system, which is totally different from what they had when I started my job in Beijing in the early 90s. It's increasingly more market-oriented. Um, the last state interest rate controls have been removed already a few years ago. All interest rates in China are now market-driven. That doesn't mean that the state doesn't have policies to influence it, because the central bank still issues circulars. But the state tells banks who they can lend to and who they can't lend to. So they have the to, guidance, yeah. PPOC's participation in the banking system is infinitely beyond what yeah. occurs in any yeah. market economy. We don't they, 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 they say you can't lend to these people, you must lend to these people. Yeah, that's what we don't necessarily know the details of because the system is not transparent. But Beijing, the party gives an instruction to a state-owned commercial banks to lend X billion or billion renminbi. Or 
not you to want, lend. Or not to lend to a particular enterprise. They don't publish that in the newspapers. Nor you, do you necessarily find it. Some of the accountants may find out, but don't necessarily tell you what's going on. So I agree with you. The state retains a lot of control over the allocation of resources through the state-owned banking system and on terms that we don't necessarily would consider market-oriented, but we don't know the details. Um, but if you look at what happened to the stock exchanges, the criteria they have for listing and delisting, they have followed essentially the Hong Kong system, which is based on the, on the New York system. Um, we've seen the, the opening of direct links between uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen, uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong. Now we have Shenzhen and Hong Kong. We, I think, soon have or already have. I don't know. Shanghai and London. December. That's already. Two more months. Yep. It's going to happen. All these things are happening. So they point to a gradual opening up of the financial system in the what I would consider the right direction. I don't blame them for doing it step by step. If they were to ask me, I would not advise them to give a completely open system today. I would think that retaining some control over the exchange rate and some control over the capital account transactions is what I would advise them to retain for the time being. Don't move to a totally open system right away. You, have to, you, you invite problems galore if you do prematurely, if you open up prematurely. And there are many examples of countries that opened up prematurely that ended up in deep trouble. So I, in answer to your question, I think the financial boys, as I sometimes call them, um, led by Guo Shuxing, who is the chairman for the party of the, of the central bank, led by Yi Gang, who is the president of the central bank. I know all these guys, they want to do the right thing, and they are moving as fast as they can. But I am not sure that the other economists who are more in charge of the state enterprises and the allocation of resources to those state enterprises, that they play the same game. So I hope that the financial reformers actually will prevail in the system. Because I, I believe they will eventually lead the system in the right direction. Bush, uh, what's his name? Just retired as president of the Central Bank. Joe Chachwan whom I also know very well, was clearly en route to financial liberalization, but step by step, he didn't want to overdo it. And I was a champion of what he was doing. Let me open the, the floor to questions right in front of me. And then, uh, great, thank you, Steve. <coughs> so with Trump, yes. Sure, Henry, I'm with HHN Capital. With Trump administration's aggressive trade policy, the import tariff, um, at least so far in the last few months, we have seen some impact, right? Uh, I think the equity market in China is at four years low. And then some of the information I've, I've been came across, it's, uh, um, you know, the economy business seems to be doing well, at least what I'm privy to. To counter that, China has decreased its domestic interest rate, pumped ample liquidity into the financial system, significantly more than in the financial crisis 10 years ago within China. Obviously, China has transformed from a export-driven to a domestic consumption economy. Nobody knows with this trade war long term last. Let's assume it's going to last longer than expected. Do you think? Obviously, China is taking a hard no stance also in this in this uh, confrontation. With that said, do you think China has the financial muscle 
um, to withstand this? Or do you think it's, it's, it's there are too, too much issues, which is too much import um, in the past that um, they would give in? What are your thoughts? Dan, if you can share your thoughts with some kind of rationale of the Thank you. When you say if you have the financial muscle to resist it, you mean U.S.? So, so far the stance, no, in China. So far the, the stance is they're playing a hardline ball, right? We're not giving in so far. And, you know, obviously it, I think it's a financial environment, the economic environment's playing that way that they're not doing well so far. Now, how long would this be? Nobody knows, right? How bad is it? Nobody knows because some of the information is not really released in the public. But what we can see so far, it's not doing that well. Uh, with that said, do you think, but the, the question is, the crux of the question is, do you think China has the financial muscle, the economic strength to withstand this tremendous pressure from the Trump administration? Either yes or no, and what are your rationale? If yes, what are your rationale? If no, what are your rationale? Thank you. Well, I certainly hope they do, I, and I think they do, actually. Uh, we should not forget, in looking at this question, that the fall in the growth rate preceded Trump's trade war. The, if you look at the, the, the Shanghai Composite Index, it began to decline long before uh, U.S. under Trump's leadership began to express negative uh, sentiments to China. So that, that to relate the decline in the Shanghai Shenzhen Stock Exchange to the Trump trade wars is, is questionable, I think. It may have aggravated the decline, because it's one of the um, aspects that people look at to reaffirm their impression that China economy is on the way down, but it is not on the way down. The growth rate this year we expect will still be about 6.5%, one of the highest, maybe India is slightly higher, but it's after India probably the highest fastest growing large economy in the world. Uh, consumer demand in China is a little down at the moment, as uh, those of you who are involved in that business perhaps may know from your uh, order books. But if you look at the trend of consumption growth over a longer period, you cannot deny that it has been very impressively in the right direction. From the time they, from the beginning of the 11th five-year plan that they had more or less their hands free to pay serious attention to this, consumption growth, private consumption growth has grown in real terms by more than 10% per year. That, that is down now. Uh, auto sales are down actually. And China being the largest auto market in the world, that is a factor of some importance and I cannot deny that there are some worrying trends in some for certain consumer goods. But if you look at the Chinese economy as a whole, the, the spread of private enterprise, the number of new private enterprises that emerges on a daily basis, the amount of um, strength in the manufacturing sector, the progress they are making in getting rid of the excess capacity in steel, certain basic industries. I, my overall sense is that, yes, this is a negative factor, but it will not kill the Chinese economy. Uh, Bill. I'm Bill Lankroster, retired journalist. I was fascinated by your description of the uh, history of the early years, especially before 1949, and 
Chunyun. So he was running, he was the sole person running China's economic policy for the first three years after uh, the establishment of the People's Republic. What happened to him afterwards? And during the Cultural Revolution, was he purged? But, I mean, you, you mentioned that he was the one who persuaded Hua Guofeng to release Deng Xiaoping. So, uh, well, th thank you very much for that question, because I struggled with that. I did not know how important Chen Yun had been until I did the research for that book. What I found is that in 1952, when they began to establish State Planning Commission and elements of a cabinet, which was late 72, Chen Yun uh, remained very important in the party, and had a personal link to, to Mao Zedong, and what he did behind the scenes, I don't know. First time he comes very prominently in view again is in 1956, when they opened the AIDS Party Congress. Chen Yun made the big opening speech for the Eighth Party Congress in 76. The, the Congress as a whole decided that socialism had been achieved, but Chen Yun, surprisingly, in his opening speech, argued <coughs> that in a successful socialist economy, you must have a private sector. Maybe. He, he made that in his opening speech in 56, and according to what I found, Mao Zedong, approved that speech beforehand, but did do, not do anything about it, because they, that was the end of all private enterprise in China, 56. Yeah. Didn't come back until much later again. So, why, and Chen Yun was not punished by Mao. Mao punished all his opponents, certainly, if not immediately, during the anti-rightist movement, during the Cultural Revolution, but Chen Yun was left un, un, untouched. And I was puzzled by that, why Chen Yun was not punished. The only explanation I could find or surmise or speculate was that he had a very good personal relationship with Mao Zedong, and that, that saved him. Mao Zedong somehow liked him. He didn't look like some other senior party leaders like Liu Xiaoxu, Liu Xiaoxu, who died a terrible death during the Cultural Revolution, the first few years of that. But Chen Yun, Anskaz, Chen Yun became very important again in the early 60s, after the Great Leap Forward had been declared a failure. He was in charge of an economic commission, and the economic commission was to restore the vibrancy of the Chinese economy in the early 60s. Then again, Chen Yun became very important in 79, after Tang Xiaoping had become the paramount party leader. They asked Chen Yun to lead a commission which had the same name as the Commission of 49, Economic and Financial Commission, they called it. Chen Yun was the heart of that commission in 79 to basically reform the economy. So they, Chen Yun brought back Tang Xiaoping. Tang Xiaoping asked Chen Yun to take the leadership in heading the, the over, overriding committee, which had four subcommittees, which dealt with specific subjects. The um, Technology Commission, I, I don't remember all the details, but you'll find them in the book if you trouble, take the trouble to look at it. But Chen Yun was incredibly important, in the, even in the early reform years. And I suspect that Chen Yun was so keen to get Deng Xiaoping back in his leadership position because they thought alike on the problems that had developed 
during the Cultural Revolution and before that during the Great Leap Forward. It wasn't until the mid-80s, mid mid-later 80s, that Chen Yun and Deng Xiaoping began to have public differences on priorities. Um, Chen Yun is also dead now, but he died way after Deng Xiaoping. Uh, no, a few years earlier than Deng Xiaoping. But uh, they began to have different ideas on what the party priorities should be in the late 80s. That's when they parted ways. Um, but it is interesting that even though they publicly parted ways, when Deng Xiaoping came back from his big, when he was already 88, he saved China for the second time in 1992 on his southern tour. You may know about it. It was a critical event in the economic history. Because the party was partly um, paralyzed by conflicts, internal conflicts of what to do after the Tiananmen disaster of 89. But Deng Xiaoping then took the lead again, although he was already 88 and had no formal party positions anymore. He still took a personal holiday, took his family to the south, made all sorts of speeches where he encouraged the entire system to resume the economic reforms with vigor again. And when he came back to Beijing after that, Chen Yun made a speech applauding him, contrary to what we would have expected. So Chen Yun was a, like Deng Xiaoping, and in 92 at least, uh, thought that his southern tour had been successful. But Chen Yun is one of the mysteries that I came across. Uh, the critical periods of the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, 56, his big speech for the Eighth Party Congress, then again the early 60s, and then again the late 70s. An incredibly important man. Nobody, very few people in the West know how important Chen Yun was for this whole emergence of China. Can we jump back to the, oh, we have another, oh, well, you can finish your question first. Well, it, it related to the first question, where you said, we, I think you said, I hope China can withstand the pressure. Um, you know, you think they have the ability to do that. This is the way to think about this, though. I mean, obviously, we all agree, I mean, serious economists agree that the bilateral trade deficit is not an appropriate measure to measure China's progress. But a lot of the things that the Trump administration is requesting that China, demanding that China should do, are things that China should do. Right. They, they really are things that China should do. And shouldn't Chinese policy today, economic policy today, do those things that are really in your interest to do? Because my problem today with Chinese economic policy is I would say the if I had a phrase to characterize it, it's protect the incumbent. It's protect the SOE who's the incumbent. It's protect the company that doesn't have foreign competition because there are investment restrictions. It's protect the company that's protected by the tariff barriers, by the non-tariff barriers. Now, the Trump administration is correct in saying, break these down. But China doesn't have to really do it for U.S.-China relations. It should do it 
because it would create more economic growth in China and be better for the people of China that the losers in protect the incumbent policy are the people. Everybody loses except for the incumbent. Well, I, I, I agree with that, and I would argue very similarly that uh, the Chinese are doing themselves a disservice by sticking to the China 2025 policy in the way it was formulated. What I sensed when I was in Beijing is that there is now awareness of the problems that were generated by this problem. Ministry of in the senior people in the Ministry of Commerce, MOFCOMET Mof is called now, it was MOFTEC when I first came to China. Don't get tired of pointing out to you it was not their baby, it was the Ministry of Technology. So they don't, don't want to assume responsibility for that. So I sense strongly that if it's in that very powerful ministry, MOFCOM, there are senior people who would like to revamp the, the technology policies. Go ahead, sorry. But can, can I just follow up with one, one, one further comment? Because I don't think that one country can ask another country legitimately to have a certain economic system. China will, may have ultimately an economic system and a political system that is very different from what we would like it to be. But that's not our decision. We have to learn to live with the idea that other countries, even if they are as important as China, uh, follow political principles that are alien to us, that we don't recognize as good for us, or good for them even. But it is not our decision. So the Trump administration or any foreign leader cannot require China to change its economic system in a direction that we are more comfortable with. We have to learn to live with whatever it is that they feel comfortable with. If we, are, if we think it is bad for them, I think we should engage them in dialogue, trying to convince them intellectually that there are certain problems with the, what they are doing. And I think that is what many people in China had always expected and from the US and from the World Bank and would again expect from the, world, from the, from the US. One of the dramas that is unfolding is that the Chinese leadership no longer believes that the US really wants to be a real partner with China. Let's get one last question. Sure, no problem. Um, I was really interested by your comments about how important the World Bank and IMF were to China's development, um, and especially lifting people out of poverty. I feel like a lot of the times that's reserved uh, when talking about China joining the WTO. Uh, so I was wondering uh, if you talk about the WTO in your book, um, and just what you think the impact of China joining the WTO uh, was on China and the global economy. Well, uh, I don't say much about WTO in the book. I think most important reforms were either be way before the WTO or after. WTO was important because it was important to the Chinese leadership at that time, particularly Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji. They were very keen to join the WTO because, not because they needed persuasion that a more open economic system was good for them, they were already persuaded, but because they could use WTO membership as a convenient uh, whip for, to get domestic opposition into, uh, into their orbit. 
That's why they, uh, I think, were so keen to join the WTO. If you allow me one little anecdotal detail. Well, well, no. We're at 701. You have to keep it to like 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, China applied for observer status in the GATT, the GATT, which is the predecessor of the WTO, already in 1983. So it was clearly in the early reforms in the early 90s, in the minds of the top leaders, that some kind of link with the global economy was desirable. They applied for membership in the GATT, because WTO didn't exist at that time, in 1986. It was also the year that the Uruguay round of negotiations started, which eventually led to the establishment of the WTO. When I was in Beijing, my office was not involved in these negotiations at all. This was between the Chinese and the members of the Working Party for the admission of China, of which Switzerland was the chairman but the U.S. was by far the most important partner. What we noticed, even though we weren't involved, we, we tried to monitor what was going on. What we noticed in 95 was that the, the negotiations came to a standstill. There were almost 12 months, no meetings at all in 95. And we began to wonder what was going on. Then we discovered what the problem was. The Chinese lawyers had just found out that even if they wanted, to, even if they became a member of the WTO, which was the objective at that time, the Jackson-Vanek Amendment would not automatically lose applicability to China, because that's under American law, and American law prevails over international law, which is one of the few countries that has that principle. So when the Chinese discovered that Jackson-Vanek would still be alive after they joined the international training body, they were totally disheartened because this was such a humiliating experience for them to be subject to this annual revision by review by Congress, whether they still met the criteria. So we then were able to, World Bank office in Beijing was able to, oh, nothing is on paper, persuade Mofcom, Longyong Tour was then the negotiations, please don't be disheartened by this. The U.S. will find a solution for Jackson Vanek, as they eventually did in the form of the PNTR, which came under Clinton in 2000. But in 95, that was not at all clear how that problem would be solved. So World Bank was not involved, but was very deeply involved in some way. Peter, thank you so much for sharing with us.